If you've ever heard the term due process and you immediately started feeling anxious and sweaty, you're not alone. That's how I feel too, as a school-based speech therapist. Welcome to episode 97 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I am your host, Rose Griffin, and we have a stellar episode today with Katherine Michael. She is an attorney, and she has spent more than 20 years working with thousands of families, behavior therapists, psychologists, parents, and teachers on designing success for children with special needs. She is the managing partner of the law firm of Connell Michael Kerr, LLP and the founder of Coffee with Catherine, which offers classes and resources for parents of children with special needs. She's really just down to earth and a wealth of information. Today, we talk about what is due process, how as school-based professionals can we work in collaboration with attorneys. And oftentimes, when you're working with autistic learners, there tends to be many professionals on the IEP team. And that can lead to some disagreements and some blips on on the scope and sequence of how we're going to help our children. And so we talked today about special education law, super informative interview. I can't wait for us to listen and learn together. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us on episode 97 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have a great episode today. We have with us Catherine Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Oh, I'm great. I am so glad to be on your show. I think you cover a lot of important topics and this is going to be fun. Yes, absolutely. And we haven't done a podcast episode on special education law, but you know, my background is I've worked in the public schools for 20 years and also divided my time between non-public programs or ABA centers. So I've seen the pros and cons of both of those different settings and have been intimately involved with special education attorneys and advocates and consultants, you name it. And I've been on both sides of the table. So I feel like I have a good perspective and I'm excited to have you on to share to share today. But for those of us that are new to you and your work, can you tell us a little bit about you, your journey into law, and why you chose the area of special education law? Well, my background was as a healthcare attorney. I'd worked in hospital risk management before law school um, and really worked a lot with making sure we had patient advocates within the hospital system. Um, and I was working at a healthcare firm. This would now be about 22 years ago. I was working at a healthcare firm. And um, I, we, we started seeing cases where children who were in the hospital, whether they're getting chemotherapy or immunocompromised, we're not getting services from the school system. And that was a real surprise for me because I, I didn't have a background. Why we all have these touchy feely feelings towards schools in some respect, you know, early on. Mm -hmm. um, and I was a little surprised at what I was seeing. Um, and then I, you know, shortly thereafter, um, have, you know, I, I was pregnant with my first child. Um, I switched to a law firm working with a woman who also was doing this uh, for a living. And we and, and the number of cases that I was seeing that I was getting in addition to some of the healthcare things I was doing 
was shocking. Um, children who were in 11th grade who had dyslexia who had never ever been provided a program or found eligible for special education, despite failing in the system for over a decade. Um, children who had cancer, who could not get a homebound program, couldn't get a shortened day despite fatigue. Um, I saw a system that really was actually pushing parents out of it and um, thinking that somebody else will take care of it. And it was it, it was shocking. I, I mean, you know, as an attorney, right, we see lots of crazy, crummy things in life, right? <laughs> as individuals, as moms, we see this, right? Yeah. You know, whether it's the play. Uh, it was not honestly what I expected to find. Mm. So initially this started off because, I, you know, I, I just had my first child by the time this is really starting to roll. Um, I, I hadn't had, I wasn't, I hadn't been a parent advocate you know, I didn't have, um, I mean, I have some family members who have disabilities, but this was never something that had been thought of. Mm -hmm. um, and it was certainly not something that I intended to go into. Mm -hmm. It really became a question of that righteous indignation of what I was seeing was so truly, and it's not every case, but I'm telling you, it's, it was enough of them, where I thought it was so reprehensible and mm -hmm. shocking that you couldn't not help the person. Um, and thankfully, within education law and special education, there are prevailing party statutes. So basically, there's civil rights laws. So if we're successful, we can get back the parents' attorney's fees. Hmm. So early on, what I was finding is I could represent these families who were really be being marginalized, whose children were truly had been denied services for years and still get paid. <laughs> and so that was what was really remarkable to me. And just how broken the system was, which, you know, I didn't, I, I did not have the insight to see from the perspective I did, you know, at that right. point. But, um, and then, you know, it took a life on its own. So this is me, you know, almost 22 years later. Mm. Um, and I've been doing it full time now for 20 of those years. Oh, okay. So wow. It's, and, you know, that is sort of, in addition to that, we handle a lot of other things that we see in schools, you know, when, children unfortunately are injured at school when we have situations mm -hmm. where we have we've had a, a lot of school shootings mm -hmm. uh, you know we get many cases where parents are afraid of sending their child to school because mm -hmm. they think they're going to hurt other children oh. um, so yeah over over the past three years I, i've definitely seen the gamut in in many places yeah, that's so interesting. And it's great that just it came out of a need that you saw that you wanted to help, you know, and what's interesting as a speech language pathologist who's worked in the schools for 20 years, you know, I took a special education law course in my postgraduate, I have an administrative licensure, but general professionals do not always take a course in special education law. And so I have taken um, the rights law courses. I think it was $99. It was very affordable. And you get these really nice books. And because I do a little bit of advocacy for some families that I see, it just kind of lends itself to that in my private practice. But really professionals, we know the IEP is a legally binding document and all of those things. But you know, a lot of us are not privy to, to all the information that goes into special education law. So I feel like unless you're involved in a case that becomes contentious, um, I have always worked in areas... I know if they were always affluent areas or with special programs where parents had to literally fight to get their kids into these specialized programs. So I've always worked with attorneys and I've always worked on IEP teams that had advocates, attorneys on both sides. So I'm like very used to that type of yeah. 
situation. But I think that as a professional, if you're not used to that, can be very like jarring. But it is very yeah. unfortunate to see some of these things. And, you know, sometimes with public schools there, especially now, there's so many people that are leaving public education. Um, I know I left my position after 20 years um, yeah. to focus on my own business. But it does, it is really kind of hard because you, sometimes you're understaffed, you're asked to do so many things. And oftentimes what I was seeing from an autism perspective is a, sc- a small local district like here in Ohio, rural Ohio, might get a, a learner with autism who has very complicated needs, who has behavioral challenges, who's not yet speaking, who's not toilet trained. And then they don't know how to educate that student appropriately. And then what happens is that that student kind of wafts along, then maybe there's an IEE done, and then they get sent to a, a, a placement when the student is 10 or 11 or 12 and has aggressive behaviors and they're unsafe. And so from my perspective, too, it's really unfortunate that districts can't spend that money antecedently, right, to bring a BCBA in or a specialist so it doesn't get to that point. So that student does have a specialized program because I've seen a lot of that, too. It's it's just really hard on both sides. But it's great that you're, you're trying to make things right. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about today is kind of like due process. What does that exactly mean? Because I know that as a professional, we hear those types of words and I haven't been in any type of due process. I've never even been in a mediation, but you know, I know a lot of people out there are maybe in these contentious situations or we hear that word and our ears kind of perk up as the therapist. So can you give us a working definition of what due process means? Yeah. And it's not as scary as everybody believes. So for, you know, and I have a lot of teacher friends that, you know, it, it's terrifying to them. I have you right. know, obviously a lot of parents it's terrifying to them. A, an educational due process is simply an administrative hearing that has been filed with your state. Okay. So in Ohio, for instance, basically you file it with the Ohio Department of Education and a parent simply says, my child is not being provided a free appropriate public education, which is basically, you know, if your child needed a one-to-one aid, then they're not getting it. If your child needs speech therapy and they're not receiving it. The other thing you can allege is that they're not being educated in the least restrictive environment, which is basically within an environment that is going to not only allow them to get their services, but not be more restrictive. In other words, we can't warehouse all children with disabilities at a certain school type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's simply an administrative filing. These are not um, cases that that bring damages, right? It's not... Mm-hmm. A school isn't being sued for a million dollars, anything like that. And so there's a lot of fear over them. And I really think that, you know, schools should lean into that a little bit saying, look, we've gotten a warning shot. Let's get in and try and get this thing resolved quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, The educational due process, and again, it's going to work the same in almost every state because that term comes from the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Mm -hmm. And almost every state, well, every state has to follow that, but most states have also what we call codified that into their own laws. They've placed it into uh, whether you're in Texas, Ohio, like in Ohio, it's their um, Ohio operating standards or something along those lines. Indiana, they call it Article 7. Um, California, they just put it in their, some of it in their state statute. The reason states will do that, and the only reason they can do it, is actually to give parents more rights mm. than they would get under the Individual Disabilities Education Act, mm. not less. 
Okay. So it's going to be done fairly uniformly because as you can imagine, states aren't chomping at the bit to, hey, let's add like 20 other great things. Right. Um, but basically a parent files that educational due process. A parent can do it on their own. In many states, they can do it with an advocate. You can also have an attorney. Mm-hmm. And schools have to have a what's called a resolution session okay. within 15 days of that filing. And that's where a school can jump in and say, look, we understand there's a problem. What do we need to do to get this resolved? Okay. Uh, and you know, it's certainly, you can still mediate the cases Mm -hmm. Um, while you're in a due process. The worst case scenario for both a parent and a school is they can't get it resolved and they go through an administrative hearing. Administrative hearings are meant to be very informal. Most of them take place at schools. Um, They take place in conference rooms. They're not in a courtroom or anything like that. Um, The rules of evidence are relaxed. Sometimes like hearsay, for instance, is allowed in. and they present their case to a hearing officer. Parents will bear the burden of proof mm-hmm. as to arguing, here's why what my child needs is not being met. Mm-hmm. And what a child needs is to find out what is going to be appropriate for them in light of their circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what that means is, um, what does your child need speech therapy? How much do they need? Do they need occupational therapy? How much do they need of that? Have they had an assistive technology evaluation um, if they're going to need to utilize that? Do they have goals across their areas of need? So let's say you have a child who has autism and we're making goals in terms of, uh, you know, let's just say we're doing academic goals because this mm-hmm. is what I'll see. A child learns their ABCs, child identifies colors but we're not seeing any behavioral goals for that child. We're not seeing any life skills goals like toileting goals, teeth brushing goals, or we're not seeing any socialization goals. Mm. Um, And so what we really are looking at is a comprehensive IEP document um, that is going to have goals, again, across those areas of need. Um, Is your child's present level of performance being properly documented. Um, And that means where your child is currently at, at the time they hold that IEP meeting. All of that, all of these issues are what can go into that due process and saying, here are the the areas that I think need to be addressed. And worst case scenario, I mean, worst case scenario, Mm -hmm. that hearing officer says to the school, you violated the law, I'm going to, I'm going to award some compensatory. They don't have to say that. They can say, I'm going to award some compensatory. Here's how we're going to catch the kiddo up. And Mm -hmm. here's how we're going to make a plan. Um, So that in the grand scheme of life, isn't like the worst thing. That's why, you know, I'm a firm believer in, we should be able to figure out a way to work these things out. Um, And, you know, there are always going to be sides where you either have a parent or you have a school that is, you know, headstrong, but (laughs) it's something where, you know, we, we have two sides that should be interested in exactly the same thing. And that is that child becoming an, you know, as independent and functional as they can be. Yes, absolutely. That's what's so hard about these situations is that, you know, you go to school for so long to help individuals and it's hard when the, you know, it's not meshing with the parents. It can be really hard, but we do always, I always try to frame it as if I've worked with parents that were a little overbearing or were difficult to work with or had a history of that, I always try to frame it of, 
this is the way that this parent is advocating for their child because I have three kids of my own. And so, you know, I try to frame it that way. It's easier when you're, you're the outside person telling somebody that and you're not the person providing the service. But okay, interesting. Now, let me ask you. So the hearing officer, because I, I yeah. knock on wood, I've never been a part of this. Um, the hearing officer, what are what are the qualifications of the hearing officer? Because the way that you talk about it, and I do like, it sounds like, okay, we're going to have a plan and this sounds right. good to have have an outside party. And I tell other speech therapists that too, you know, when you're, cause I'm a speech therapist and a BCBA. So when I talk to speech therapists, oftentimes they have a hard time working with BCBAs. And what happens is usually a BCBA is coming in as a consultant. They're not an employee of the district and they're called in because things are going poorly. <laughs> you know, things are not going well. So then it's the BCBA talking to the speech therapist and kind of looking at data or programming and saying like, well, what's going on here? So it can kind of be a contentious situation. But I do yeah. like the idea of, and I try to say, it's great to have a consultant. You know, even me as a speech therapist in the BCBA, I acted as the speech therapist on the team, which was great because I'm like, yes, tell me, you know, I like to use the consultant model because yeah. having that outside person for the dynamic of the team, I think has served the student well and kind of take some deflection off of the school team. So I think it's nice to have the hearing officer kind of make a plan. And that sounds like an outside party, which I think sounds like a good idea. What are the qualifications of a hearing officer? What, what are the qualifications of that person typically? Okay. Well, that brings us to the problem. Oh, okay. I'm curious. Yeah. That's yeah. a good question. In, huh? in some states, it, most of the time, the qualifications in 95% of the states are they have to be an attorney. Oh, okay. And as you may imagine, um, attorneys don't just yeah. necessarily by symbiosis understand um, yeah. education, Right. The needs of a child with autism, the mm-hmm. needs of a child with Down syndrome, the needs of a child with a schizoaffective disorder, right? Right. Um, and so, number one, they're supposed to be an attorney um, in most states. In some states, and in that this includes actually Indiana, non-attorneys were grandfathered in, mm-hmm. um, and so they they have uh, you know hearing officers. Um, I think we only have one remaining in Indiana, but who are not attorneys. So that's, that's number one. It's a double, it really is a double-edged sword. Second, they're supposed to be independent. Um, and in most situations, I, I would say in most states, you of course get independent hearing officers. I, I don't think that's necessarily a big problem. But the third is the training. Um, and as you can imagine from you doing this in the schools, it takes a lot of insight to be able to understand, okay, here we have a problem. Right. Um, there's also, and I will say this, there is a, at sometimes, and this goes more with pro se parents, a bias towards the parent, right? They're looking yeah. at uh, hearing officers are looking at schools and saying, <laughs> oh my gosh, these poor schools, they're understaffed, um, you know, due, due to COVID, there's not enough special education teachers. So I will see rulings all the time where a parent who doesn't know how to really train the hearing officer on the law Mm-hmm. State is supposed to do it, but I mean, most states have like a two-day training once a year. Um, you can, right? You know, on your own, right? That, that right. not going to do it, right? Um, and I see decisions which are totally contrary to law all the time, and mm. that's one frustrating thing for me uh, as an attorney to see children who um, haven't been provided some of the services I know they're entitled to by law, right? Uh, for really long periods of time and see hearing officers who they assume that the school is telling them the truth. 
Mm. And sometimes, and you have to remember, schools are represented by council. And I can tell you this from, you know, I work with charter schools as well. The schools often don't know the law. Right. Oh, right. Your friends, you know, we'll be out having a glass of wine. <laughs> we'll be talking about like kids with IEPs, and yeah. one of them will be two glasses. And I don't, and say, I don't even know who's got IEPs in my class. I cannot tell you. I mean, they all right. have a PhD. Right. <laughs> all right. That's what comes out. And I'm thinking, you know, one of those kids probably has a mental health issue, right? They're struggling right. with depression and anxiety. One of those kids probably has OCD. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're picking at themselves and nobody's noticing. So for me, that's very frustrating. But what I see when I work with, with schools is, you know, entities that don't understand the law and the unfortunate thing, and this is not everywhere. I have many friends who are school attorneys who are good ethical people, but you're getting paid right, right to, to defend your client. Right. You're not getting paid to talk sense into them or to train them. Um, I, I'm going to give you an example. If I file a case and I get it solved at a resolution session, my client jumps for joy, right? right. They are terrified of due process. Right. I mean, you know, most of them, and and so parents want to settle these things very quickly. Yeah. Right? If I could send a letter or go to an IEP conference, they'd be like, oh, please, just please just do this for us. Yeah. Um, school... On the other hand, most of them, depending on your state, are covered by insurance when it comes to due process. Mm. And so that's something that a lot, and it's not every state. Some of them Mm -hmm. just have a budget line item. Okay. Um, And what happens is a school will, and this is natural, right, will feel attacked. Absolutely. So what they do is they go into defense mode, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, This, this child, we had no idea that they couldn't read, you know, these, these testing measures are not accurate testing measures. We think this is something going on at home. The parents got divorced two years ago. That's why this child has a diagnosis of dyslexia. It can be really idiotic stuff, but a school attorney who walks into a case like this, they solve it in 10 hours. They're an insurance defense counsel. There's not enough of these cases because, you know, they're, you don't even file that many of them. Right. Right. They're not going to be able to make money doing this. So it's not mm-hmm. in their interest to, all right, look, school, we need to have an in-service and I need to figure out how not to get you sued anymore. Okay. That's, <laughs> because that's how they make money. Right. So for many parents in many places, and this is not every place, I'll give you some great places, but yeah. a parent will file this, be asking for you know, I need some more reading goals. My child needs a decoding, an encoding, a comprehension goal. Do you have any reading specialist? Can I get 30 minutes of reading a week? Or, you know, my child's behavior has gotten worse and worse. Can you bring in a BCBA? Can Mm -hmm. I get a speech evaluation? Um, And you'll have a school double down and spend Mm -hmm. a lot of money fighting with a parent over very simple things. And Mm -hmm. so that's, that's really disconcerting. And it certainly happens in some areas of the country much more than others. I have, you know, states that we work in mm-hmm. that I can pick up the phone and call a special ed director and the problem is solved. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and those, you know, are, are really great. I have some areas of the country where the hearing officers are really well trained. Yeah. Um, most of those are on the East Coast, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. All, you're right. But they're, yeah. they're they take, you know, they don't take nonsense from schools and that in itself helps, helps the system because schools being held accountable Mm -hmm. are going to be more reasonable. Right. Yeah. 
So that's what's been disconcerting for me, too, is um, just, you know, I was describing how horrendous it was when I started. Yeah. I still see cases that I, you know, the only wording I can use is shocking to the conscience. And I think, you know, as time went on, like the teachers cared, I, you know, they, but right. they didn't know what to do. They don't know the law. They don't know what right. they're entitled to. I mean, I have um, a case where the teacher had been beat up repeatedly by a student. She had been yeah. kicked, hit. She had no clue that schools were responsible for residential or that there could be a therapeutic day placement for this child. I mean, she had gotten to the point to where she was just going to quit her job because it was too dangerous in her classroom. Wow. And I'm really the school hasn't supported this teacher. They've let her mm. be injured. They've let her be hurt. They've let their yeah. aides be hurt. And they just keep hoping that the child, they keep calling the police. They hope that the child will be, you know, if there's a child with autism, will be dealt with by the criminal justice system or that the parents will withdraw or that if, if the Department of Child Services is called one more time to the school, that, you know, maybe they'll go to a charter school or do something else. And so I still to this day see things that I'm just, again, where it, to me, it's just not where we should be at at this point in time. Yeah, that is shocking. And I don't know if it's because I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, or I've always kind of, I don't know, just picked out places. I feel like when I used to go into interviews, I was really interviewing the place, you know, instead of vice versa, because I was offered every job. When you say, yes, I love to work with kids that are autistic, and I love to work with kids with challenging behavior, I'm usually pretty popular in an interview, you know. Um, But all the places that I've worked have just been so stellar. I don't know if it's because, but, you know, I work in an area that has a lot of non-public programs. And so for me, that was what was funny about for me is that sometimes parents would move into my old public school district, Mm -hmm. which was a very affluent district, and they would try to leverage that district, even though we had stellar services, to get into a non-public program. And what was so funny is I was the speech therapist at the non-public program. So it was just very, very funny. It's like, what are you fighting for? And for me to work in a non-public program and a public school, a non-public program is great if it's a student who has unsafe problem behavior. But other than that, you know, any parents listening, I would urge you to try to work with your school district because in a public school, there's just so many things that spark joy in the heart of kids that you just have to try to recreate in a private placement. And, you know, a public school has has music and ada- a good public school, adapted music and adapted PE and, you know, a lunchroom and outside space and a playground and sometimes private centers, no matter how great they are, you're still trying to recreate the amazing things that are already just embedded into the public school system. So I would just say be picky about the public school district that you choose to live in if you can be. Oh, for sure. And you know, that is one great thing in Ohio is the number of scholarship programs. programs. I mean, Ohio, I will tell you, is unlike most of the states. Mm. Um, And I will also tell you that 99.9% of the cases that we have in Ohio get resolved very quickly. (laughs) So Ohio is is one of those states where we still have some pretty atrocious cases at times, but it is substantially better than its surrounding states. Oh, that's good. Yay. Yeah. Because sometimes, sometimes people will say things and I'm like, I don't know if it's just because of where I worked or it was, you know, me and I worked in a district for 10 years, you know, this one district, it was just, we just offered such great services. But even if you offered the best services, there are always going to be parents that think maybe an outside placement is better. And I guess my parent heart feels sad about that because outside placements also have the con of 
It is a place where students usually have unsafe behavior and you're educating them all together. And so it can be, if your student doesn't engage in unsafe behavior, it can almost be a dangerous place for other students as well. So that's just something to think about, you know, for parents that might be listening to. And it really is. I mean, it's got to be on that case by case thing. And and yes. that's where you're, you've got to be communicating with your school. And there are mm-hmm. some, I mean, really terrific districts where you're absolutely right. I mean, you're just not going to find a private organization that has the ability to provide as much as a public school does. Now, that said, I I mean, I see districts that are night and day, 20 Mm -hmm. miles from each other, where, uh, and my children went to public schools, just so, I mean, um, and they're both in college now. um, But, you know, both of my kids graduated from public schools. So Mm -hmm. I you know, it's one of those things where you can look at one district and say, God, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you can drive to a neighboring one and be like, oh, my goodness, these poor, these poor families. Right. Um, there are places that I go to that I'm just like, you know what? This was somebody here drew the short straw in right. accident and not visiting these schools before their children came into them. And those mm-hmm. are also the areas that have trouble recruiting teachers. Mm-hmm. They have trouble re- retaining teachers, right? Yeah. Um, yep. There was a school I was in um, uh, recently. It was up in northern Indiana. And they actually, at for one period of time, within their entire school, had like only one special education teacher for the entire school, trying to make rounds, basically calling it consulting. Um, oh. And almost every teacher was on a transition to teaching license, like the emergency license. They were not licensed teachers. So it's, I mean, there are areas of the country like that. Yeah. It's very different. So when I go, you know, I'm in Carmel, Indiana today. And I mean, you walk in some of these schools, you're like, these are beautiful. These are, these are incredible. Mm -hmm. You walk in other schools and you're like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I do the same. I lived in Austin, Texas. When we got married, we lived down there for three years and we would drive to the outskirts of Austin and some more rural areas, which is a lot like Ohio. Some of these areas are so small and not to be biased, but I always drive through and think, oh, you know, I I worry about the autism services because, you know, sometimes they can't get teachers. They can't even get the staff now with COVID and so many people leaving public education. So I too have those thoughts, but I'm just, I'm not in the school. I'm just kind of driving through, but I'm thinking the same thing because when I worked down in Austin, I was getting my BCBA and we had people that would come in from four hours away from Austin for their supervision. And the one lady said, you know, our speech therapist um, discharged a wants to discharge a first grader who has autism because he's not talking yet. So she doesn't think that he would qualify for speech therapy. And I was like, oh, my gosh. People think that. I mean, because speech therapists go to school for six years. It is actually extremely hard. I graduated summa cum laude with my undergrad. It is extremely hard to get into graduate school. And it's it's just so when you hear things like that, too, you're like, is this person been through the same rigor that I've been through to become a speech therapist? But then on the other hand, some speech therapists don't feel comfortable working with autistic learners if you've never. And that's what I try to do at ABA Speech is to build these platforms. And I have courses and do a lot of training and professional development. Because as a speech therapist, if you have a kid that comes into your office and they're running around and they're not engaged and you weren't taught how to reach that learner, it can make you feel really overwhelmed and make you feel like, ooh, I'm not sure how to help this student. So it makes me feel bad about myself. I just don't want to work on it, you right. know, which yes. is just very disheartening. Oh, 
It is. It is. Yeah. I think, you know, especially when you see even a child who is is someplace where they haven't had access to those services or they had them through depending on your state, like first steps for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then you realize there's this window of opportunity with communication that you really want to be hitting. And Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So for those of us that might be school-based professionals and and who want to learn more about special education law, because I mean, I took the rights law course because I do a little bit of advocacy work and that was $99. It was very inexpensive. You get a couple books that were great. Um, Are there other ways that professionals can learn? Because I know that when I was going through and just reading the book, I was like, oh, this is interesting. I don't know if I was directly taught this. And I've been doing this 20 years and I feel like, you know, I provide professional development for my living. So I feel like I might know more than the average person, but for somebody that might want to learn a little bit more, do you have any resources that might be helpful? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So I actually have a website where I offer intensives as well. Um, and we have a lot of teachers who attend and that is coffeewithcatherine.com and it's C-O-F-F-E-E with W-I-T-H and then Catherine, my name, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E. Um, and we do offer intensives. We're basically trying to educate people on the law, on um, how to advocate, how to deal with difficult people, right? Which teachers have to deal with, you know, they're going to be difficult yes. parents as well. Um, and that really is, we're trying to help people at sort of the front end before they really start to have uh, those struggles. And, you know, one of, I think the most important things in, in all of this is educating yourself as a professional. I mean, we get mm-hmm. a lot of teachers who, once they start to educate themselves, can be really clear to administrators. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something you're violating the law. And that actually can protect the teacher under, you know, whistleblower statutes, all sorts of things. Their union can step in because they're saying you have an absolute obligation. Um, there are, we get, unfortunately, um, a lot of calls from teachers as well, and we can't take those cases, but where they are concerned because they're being directed to do something that they shouldn't. Mm. And that's really disconcerting when you get an email to you saying, I, mm-hmm. I work for such and such district, I need help. We, we can't take their cases right. um, and just refer them out. But it's one of those situations where it really does give you that pause. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, you tend to start to see the districts who are really on the ball mm-hmm. and the ones who aren't. Right. Absolutely. So is that the best place for people to find out more about you and your work? Or do you have another way that people could reach yeah. out? And that for, for parents who are in Indiana, um, Michigan, Texas, we also have attorneys in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Alaska, um, they can actually go to our law firm website, which is www.c as in Connell, M as in Michael, K as in Kerr, lawfirm.com. So that's www.cmklawfirm.com. Um, and we can help them get, you know, hooked up with a lawyer who works in their jurisdiction um, for our office. Um, and, you know, it's a good way just, again, sometimes we have parents who are new to the system or who have a conflict mm-hmm. who just say, I want to spend an hour going over this. I, I, I want to understand what I can do or what I can do even with an advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, I, I really wish parents weren't so afraid mm-hmm. of education attorneys because as you know <laughs> from working with them, most of us who are in this are, you know, the equivalent of civil rights attorneys. We're not doing mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> uh, we're not doing, you know, massive, you know, intellectual property litigation. Most education attorneys are really um, people who are truly just trying to help families. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was really great to to talk with you and connect. And it was good to talk to you as well. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.